Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, I hope you found lots of value in the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast and all of the resources over at marinebio.life. If you have, I'd like to invite you to support the show by becoming a patron over at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. For less than a cup of coffee, you can help support the podcast. Of course, when you join the pod, there are a few fun bonuses thrown in, including ocean templates, early access, and live calls with me. So be sure to check out the different patron levels. Head on over to patreon.com backslash marine bio life for more information patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's episode. I hope everyone is staying safe and sane during these unprecedented times. The COVID-19 pandemic is happening and a large portion of the world is being advised to practice social distancing. What better way to do that than to imagine yourself swimming in the deep blue sea It's probably the most tranquil and serene place to be on the planet, in my opinion anyway. Because we are all being good citizens of the world and keeping our distance from in-real-life get-togethers, I have been working on keeping you guys up to date with all the amazing resources that have been coming out. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. I'm getting new content almost daily and trying to make it available to you guys as quickly as possible. And there has been some seriously, seriously astounding things coming out of this lockdown. So many virtual ocean opportunities are available, including story time, live webcams, and lessons. Head over to marinebio.life and check it all out. And if you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter while you're over there. In addition to bi-weekly updates on the podcast, there's some goodness in there that I just don't share anywhere else. Again, marinebio.life. Apparently, y'all have the same sense of humor that I do, and I love it. Thanks to those who have given me feedback on the jokes, I have got a couple more for you today. What fish has the best melody? The tuna. Who is the most glamorous animal in the ocean? The sea star. On to today's episode. In today's episode, I'm chatting with Bailey Jo Curtis. Bailey is a Midwestern American girl studying marine biology in Queensland, Australia. Now, when Bailey and I recorded this episode, it was well before the coronavirus was a concern. I say this because Bailey and I make light of a food contamination concern later in the episode that in the current state of the world seems a bit nearsighted. Just a heads up for that. It's amazing how much the world has changed. We do have an amazing episode for you today, though. Today, we're diving into what it's like to take a field course off the Great Barrier Reef. We also learned some surprising differences between Australian and American university coursework. Bailey shares some insight into what it's like to have an internship at an aquarium working with sharks and rays. And she also shares one of the most incredible stories I've heard of how she got dive certified. Here is Bailey. Bailey, thank you for being on the Marine So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Cara. You are coming all the way from Australia right now, which is really fun. You are pursuing your undergrad at James Cook University. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what inspired you to go to James Cook University? 
So I started my undergrad at Northwest Missouri State University in Missouri because they're one of the only um, universities in Missouri that has marine biology. And then I got into my sophomore year and I realized that their program didn't really have um, any hands-on classes, which I was obviously interested in. So I decided to look into studying abroad, which is how I came across James Cook. And I never really thought about going to Australia until I saw James Cook and all the amazing things that the professors there were doing. So in February 2017, I studied abroad for that entire semester. And then I, um, actually funny story, I decided to transfer in the middle of the semester. I was like, yes, this is definitely what I want to do. And um, (laughs) I forgot the um, password to my email here at JCU. And when I applied, I couldn't I couldn't find if find out if I um, got accepted because I couldn't remember my email password. And, and when I got all the way back home, I finally like got a hold of the IT people and they gave me my password and I'd been accepted, but I was already at home. So I uh, <laughs> I stayed at home for another semester and then came back February of 2018. And I've been here ever since. What was it like to transfer mid-semester? I feel like transferring is something that a lot of people would struggle with and your your credits don't always transfer, your classes don't always transfer. Like how did that work out for you? Oh, it was it was definitely interesting. Um a lot of my classes since American um you, like the United States school ses- system does things differently since we have four-year degrees and not three-year. Mm-hmm. So Australia doesn't have, um, what are they called? Like the small classes, like in history, art, and stuff like that. Since I study science, I had to do those in the States. But here they didn't transfer as anything, not even electives, because you're not supposed to do classes outside of your degree. Oh, that's interesting. So in the States, we have well-rounded general education credits. Yeah which is what you just described. But when you are going to university in Australia, you pick your major and you pursue only that, which kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely hardcore in in that aspect. So if you study history, you only take history courses. You do Mm -hmm. have a few elective courses, but they have to be around what you're studying. So like my elective courses have to do with conservation (laughs) instead of like doing something in art history or something different like that. That makes sense. So it feeds into what you're already studying. Exactly. Interesting. I found you on Instagram, which is really fun. <laughs> Instagram is just this marvelous thing. And I also saw on Instagram that um, you just got back from the Orpheus Island Research Station. Could you, yeah. could you tell us a little bit about your time at the research station? Oh, yeah. So I did, I'm in a course right now called Coral Reef Ecology. And um, so we had to go to Orpheus as a field trip to look, uh, survey the um, some study sites there and decide what the percentage coral coverage was. And I'm actually writing a paper on it right now. It's one of my finals. <laughs> and um, so we had to look at all of the different morphologies and types of coral that were around Orpheus Island. And it was amazing to see the diversity whenever you look at um, – the impact that global warming has on the coral reefs, but mm-hmm. Orpheus hasn't really been affected as much as um, places more southern on the Great Barrier Reef. So it was amazing to see that diversity 
so Orpheus Island's more on the northern end of the Great Barrier Reef. Is it just is it more remote than most places as well? Is that one of the reasons why it's a little less affected? Yeah, so places more north um, aren't as affected as much, which is really interesting. So Orpheus Island, I'm in Townsville, which is pretty, it's northern Queensland, and uh, it doesn't get as affected. And also Orpheus is inside of the Great Barrier Reef, so it's a reef off of the Great Barrier Reef because Great Barrier Reef is obviously just reef systems making up a massive, a bigger reef system. Right. Smaller reef systems comprising of the whole Great Barrier Reef, hence the name. Exactly. Yeah. Orpheus is just like a little stem off of the Great Barrier Reef. It's a little, it's more inland than the Great Barrier Reef. Okay. But the the diversity there was amazing. I had never seen anything like it. What were some of the things that you saw? A lot of aggregations of Acropora, like branching Acropora. And um, we saw massive parietes and pretty much that's about all I saw, but (laughs) (laughs) it's just interesting to see all of the different morphologies between the coral families. Did you see a lot of bleaching? Definitely. One of the study sites, I think I had only found 15% coral coverage compared to the 85% um, bleached or dead substrate that was there, which was Mm. really, really sad to see. And it was only probably three kilometers from one of the study sites that that was the most diversity I've ever seen. So it's crazy Mm -hmm. just the difference between those two. Yeah, that is really interesting. And you said it was only three kilometers away? Yeah, it was just off off another island just north of Orpheus called Polaris. So a little microcosm maybe happening. Yeah, exactly. So can the public access Orpheus Island or do do you need to be enrolled in university or kind of part of a research team? To be at the study sites, like the research station itself, you have to be affiliated with um, either JCU or the Australian Institute of Marine Science. But there is a portion of Orpheus that has a, um, like a massive, I guess you'd call it a hotel that you can stay at, but it's very expensive because you have to get a like a, an hour ferry out to Orpheus and basically the only way to get around the island because there's not really any road systems is by helicopter and or hiking. How big is the island? Um, it's not very big. I don't know the exact like land area, but it would only take about an hour to hike to the other side. So oh, it's not, okay. it's not so a big, not big island. at all. No, not at all. Interesting. So you were out there part of this class. Now was your class kind of you said you were working on information for a paper, but mm-hmm. does all of your research and data that you're collecting kind of go into a bigger data set that a researcher is working on? It sounds like really valuable information that you're gleaning. You said you saw beautiful reef systems mm-hmm. and then three kilometers away, there was you know 15% live systems and the rest was bleached or dead. I don't know if they would trust student data as much since this is one of the first coral classes that I've ever taken. And obviously I can't identify corals as well as a lecturer or a person who's been doing it their entire lives. But while we were out Mm -hmm. there, there were um, a few researchers that were doing their own research while snorkeling with us. They got to survey the area as well. And their information goes to the Australian Institute of Marine Science to go towards their coral observation studies. Very cool. Yeah. And so were you specifically looking for stressed corals or was there other things that you were trying to study? We were trying to see the percent coverage, but also the abundance of different fauna on the corals. So 
around the Acropora, we saw a lot of um, small reef fishes. What else did we see? There's just a lot of like algae. It's kind of hard to explain what we were looking at. <laughs> so like one of the things that I saw was a pomacentrid. There was a lot of abundance of pomacentris, um, a little yellow reef fish, and they absolutely love living on the Acropora aggregations. I've seen that. They do tend to cluster around it. It's very cool. And I'm sure you saw other other organisms kind of living it around definitely. the reef as well, you know, to the typical um, sea cucumbers and um, sea fans and all that fun oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I actually didn't see any sea fans, surprisingly. Really? That's interesting. None. Yeah. Hmm. For the stressed corals for the audience, could you explain the difference between a bleached coral and a dead coral? Because there is a difference. Yes, there is. So... Bleached corals are the corals that look white in color, but actually the coral themselves, the coral is alive. Mm-hmm. Corals have zooxanthellae that live on them, which is like some symbiotic relationship where the zooxanthellae photosynthesize and then the corals feed off of the... Right. So the so the corals are a live animal, right? And, yes, yes. and, they, can, and they can filter the water and gain some nutrients on their exactly. own. but not enough to sustain them. So this is why they have the symbiotic relationship with the zooxanthellae. Yeah. Which is what gives it its beautiful color, right? Yeah. And different species of zooxanthellae have different colors and that's where you get the different colors on the corals as well. So do you know if each, there's, so there's each types of coral, mm-hmm. right? You have Acropora and Parites. Does each type of coral have its own very specific species of zooxanthellae that live on it? They do. And actually, there are different families of um, zooxanthellae that live within. It could be one acropora by another one, but they have two different types of zooxanthellae within them. So mm. one zooxanthellae can only live between a certain temperature threshold, while the next one, so like clade D symbionts, normally um, have a higher temperature threshold so they can live in um, higher temperature waters compared to like, let's say clay to A. So it's just kind of circle back to the bleach. So we have the coral and if it gets stressed, it will kick the zooxanthellae out. Yes. And, and it's, but it doesn't mean it's actually dead and it can, it can somehow assimilate the zooxanthellae back if optimal temperatures or conditions are met. Mm -hmm. The best way to tell a dead coral actually is to uh, see if there's algae growing on it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if it's actually dead, there will be algae on it. Yes. So what got you into marine biology in the first place? You kind of sounded like you went in with a mission. You grew up in Missouri, and and, which is a landlocked state. What got you interested in the ocean and marine biology? Um, Actually, funny story. Um, Whenever I was 17, I decided that I wanted to get my scuba diving certificate. Mm. So... My family and I um, fundraised and saved up money for me to go to the British Virgin Islands for three weeks and live on a catamaran with um, a really cool company called Odyssey Expeditions. Mm-hmm. And it's basically for teenagers to like learn about reef systems and be able to become scuba certified. But whenever I showed up there, that was the first time I had ever seen the ocean. What? It was when I was 17. Yep. <laughs> And you decided that you wanted to get certified and you had no idea you had not seen the ocean. Nope. That is a heck of a story. 
the first time I ever went snorkeling was the first time I had ever touched the ocean. Wow. That's quite the leap to do because to live on a catamaran for three weeks is not, if it's not your cup of tea is not very much fun. If you like it, it's wonderful, but you had no idea you're just going for it. Mm -hmm. I love it. I kind of jump in head first with everything I do. (laughs) That's awesome. So you were in BVI's for, and that's where you got dive certified. So you're kind of spoiled rotten for life with diving. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's what everybody tells me. And now you dive on the Great Barrier Reefs. What were some of the things that you saw down in BVI's? Probably my most memorable thing was we were diving one of the big wrecks there. I'm not, I don't remember what the name was, but there was a cowtail ray that was probably three meters wide wow. in diameter. It was great. It was so massive and it was just chilling at the bottom. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And that's where my love for elasmobranch started. I love sharks and rays. So cool. How are sharks and rays going to be incorporated in your into your degree or into your studies? Um, I'm hoping that I can get a, a job in conservation of sharks and rays after my undergraduate, but seeing as everything's pretty you have to have a postgraduate degree to mm. get a nice job in marine biology. Seems like I'll probably have to go back to school. But um, I did an internship at the Henry Dorley Zoo and Aquarium okay. in Omaha, Nebraska. And I was there, Elasma Brink intern. And I just decided that that's definitely what I want to do the rest of my life is to work with sharks and rays because they're so smart. Smart and charismatic. Yeah, exactly. They all have their own little personalities. <laughs> What was your experience like as an intern? What what were some of your responsibilities? We took care of all of the animals, but I was primarily with the sharks and rays. I had to go to work at 7 a.m. every morning, which is pretty, pretty normal. Um, we started food prep basically immediately. Um, that takes about two and a half hours for the morning feed, and then you have to do the same thing. What's, what is food prep? Is that cutting up squid? So we did squid, capelin. Um, sometimes we got salmon. Um, some of the smaller guys, like the uh, cow mm-hmm. cow nose rays, they got capelin and smaller squid. And then whenever we were spoiling the tiger shark, or not tiger sharks, oh my goodness, sand, mm-hmm. sand sharks, um, we would get salmon. It's really bloody. If you've ever worked with salmon, it's so bloody and hard to clean up after. But yeah, so we would do food prep all basically for two and a half hours in the morning. And then we would do our rounds. We would clean tanks, of any filters that needed to be done, uh, get meds from the vets. We would help with transportation of animals between different aquariums. I got to help with that twice, which was really cool. Yeah, that's pretty much our day. It's a lot of food prep. If you want to go into an aquarium, that's what you have to be looking for. You feed a lot of animals all day. They got to eat and you're their source. Yeah. Yeah. So was this a paid internship? Unfortunately not. There's not many paid internships that you can do as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Seems to be a common theme. What are some of the differences between the Australia education system and the American education system? that you've noticed. This that is are a kind great of, question. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> Everyone asks this, especially um, Americans that come over just for study abroad. So 
Uh, one of the biggest differences I saw was the Australian education system doesn't really have as many homework assignments mm-hmm. or um, just little tasks where you can get points. So we, one of my classes, for example, I've had three sets of just small homework assignments that are only 15% of my grade. And then I have a paper that's worth 35% of my grade. And then my final is worth 50%. Wow. So yeah, you just, you have to know your stuff, all the ins and outs of it to be able to uh, do well in each course, which is probably good since it's three years. It's a very short time to understand everything, but I feel like I understand the stuff that's going on in these classes better than I was at Northwest in Missouri. Sounds like you made the right choice then. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. That's for sure. Why Why James Cook? One of my professors, he's actually, um, his one of his parents is Canadian. One of them is Australian. He was my, I guess you could say mentor at Northwest. Mm-hmm. And I was actually looking to go to James Cook in Cairns, which is just four hours north of here. But they don't have a, a very good um, marine biology program. They do basically zoology and ecology there. But since I was just studying abroad at the beginning, I thought six months there wouldn't be too bad because it's closer to the Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. And then I talked to my mentor about it. And he was like, no, I definitely think that you should go to James Cook. Almost all the professors there have their own publications. They know what they're talking about whenever they're explaining things to their students. So I was like, well, I think I'll, I think I'll go with that one. And you've loved it since. Oh, yes, definitely. Awesome. So you have also started uh, the Women in Ocean Science Townsville Instagram page. Could you kind of explain the premise behind Women in Ocean Science and then um, the goals of your page? Yeah, so I actually heard about Women in Ocean Science because of one of my good friends that also went to James Cook, but she graduated two years ago now. And she is the editor for their page. And she told me that I should sign up to be a lead ambassador because like, I love talking. I love talking to people. And she's like, I feel like you would do really well as that. So I kind of jumped in headfirst again. And I was like, yeah, definitely. I'm going to be a lead ambassador. I'm going to start my own um, club here at JCU to try to get all of the marine biology students together, not even just females, just anyone that wants to be part of the club, even though it is women in ocean science. (laughs) Men also have really good ideas and can help us, <laughs> you know. Can't, can't discount those man ideas. <laughs> exactly. So, like my line that I like using when trying to explain what I want to do with women in ocean science here is like creating a community of like-minded ocean-loving women in Townsville. So, the people that I love it. Yeah, I just I enjoy being able to talk about stuff that I love and seeing everybody else geek out with me. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> do you see that acropora? Did you see this palmacentrid? It's, yeah, it's really fun to get to nerd out a little bit with your friends and they actually know what you're talking about. Yeah. So what, what do you guys do as a club? Do you go diving? Do you watch documentaries? So, so far. Are you just talking about news? Yeah. So far we, um, we're trying to get our member membership up um, in our club right now. We have a few people that have decided to try to help out, like our dive club and um, 
just random people in the community that want to be a part of it. We so far have done a beach cleanup, which was on the International Beach Cleanup Day on September 21st. And we actually Excellent. collected over 10 kilos of trash, random trash, plastic, everything. And we used that data and sent it off to a um, an organization that collates all of all the data around the world to try to see what the most common um, type of plastic pollution there is. So they use it for larger data hmm. sets. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what the, did you get the results? Do you know what the most common plastic pollution item um, is? From what we picked up at our Cape Palaranda in Townsville, it was cigarette butts, which is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. That happens everywhere, basically. And um, small little microplastics, so like from water bottle lids, those were really common. Or we actually found a lot of zip ties on the beach, which was really interesting. I didn't know why they were there, but we found about 30 of them. Hmm. But yeah. Interesting. I wonder if it's like part of a fishing gear yeah, it could be. that broke off or mm-hmm. something. Very interesting. So you kind of segued nicely into plastic Free July, I saw that you celebrated Plastic Free yes. July. Would you explain the premise behind it? We'll start there. What's the premise behind Plastic Free July? So it's July? just trying to reduce your plastic pollution a little bit. Me and my housemates are do it pretty much all the time, but only really talked about it during Plastic Free July because that's when all the media comes out about it. So you want to you mm-hmm. decrease your plastic pollution as much as you can, like, don't buy water bottles every single day when you could buy it once. You're saving money for yourself. You're saving the environment. Um, just easy switches that you could do that have a major impact on the plastic pollution in the area. We kind of did mm-hmm. it to make ourselves feel better about what we were putting into our trash. So like during Plastic Free July, we had had barely any um, trash that couldn't be recycled or like tin cans and stuff. So we've made so many major switches in our house just Mm -hmm. from going from um, plastic bags to using reusable bags. We only use um, soap bars or like shampoo and conditioner bars. We have no Ziploc bags in our house. We use the jars like Mm -hmm. when you buy salsa. You can easily reuse that jar rather than using a Ziploc bag. Um, Instead of using Kleenex boxes for tissues, we um, cut up old shirts and use those as tissues, and then you just throw them in the washer, and then they're clean again. Mm -hmm. You can put them back in that cardboard box that you got whenever you got your Kleenexes in the first place. So it's really easy to reuse. Whenever you're trying to get in coffee, you can take a mason mason jar to anywhere on our campus, and it's only three dollars, no matter what the size of the jar is, which is a hack for anyone else out there that can do that. <laughs> I use a massive mason jar, and it's only three dollars for like an extra <laughs> large coffee, so that's always fun. I have like a sixty ounce mason jar. <laughs> that would be really entertaining. They haven't said anything to me, and mine's like a bowl. So awesome! Those are really good easy switches what was the hardest thing to kind of like switch out for you or like avoid I think it's um buying meat Mm because me and my 
my one of my roommates. We try to be as vegetarian as possible, but our other two uh, roommates aren't really vegetarian. But it's it's hard in Townsville for some reason to go to a butcher with your own container and be like, can we fill it with this? They they will just flat out say no. Like we can't do it just for hygiene and stuff like that. It's like, well, if we are asking you, we're like putting ourselves at risk with this hygiene thing. So like, I don't understand mm-hmm. why they don't do it, but it's definitely easier to be plastic free if you're vegetarian than it is if you need to go to a butcher in Townsville. What inspired you to become zero waste or plastic free? I think it was probably inspiration. I would honestly say my roommate, Savvy, she's like my best friend as well, but she's very, very passionate about plastic free and her whole family is as well. So I think that's where mine stem from. She, once you see it in mm-hmm. the, uh, in a different light, you go into a grocery store and you can just see all this plastic just from bags and you, it like gives you this weird eerie feeling. You're like, why, why is that orange in plastic? Why is a banana wrapped in plastic when it has its own natural covering on it? And it's, it's just like, mm-hmm. once you see it from a broader sp- perspective, there's hundreds of people coming into this grocery store a day. You all are buying things that have plastic on it. That's thousands, potentially thousands of pieces of plastic in one day that are going into the garbage, going into landfills. So if I change what I'm doing with my 100 things that I buy, that's 100 less pieces of plastic. So I think just seeing it from a broader perspective than just, oh, I'm going to buy this one water bottle. But if 100 people do that same thing in one day, that's 100 water bottles, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up a really good point about you can be the change that you wish to see. And it also helps to influence others. Like your roommate helped to influence you. And like, I'm sure you're influencing other people. (laughs) So thanks for doing that. I'm sure the oceans do too. And I know you have to see it when you're diving. There's, yeah, if you get in the ocean, you, you see plastic. There's just no avoiding it. You can see it tumbling like weeds at the bottom. Yes. Yes. And it definitely drives home the point of trying to reduce your impact that way. That's for sure. I know you have limited experience as far as field research, but you do have some. I mean, you spent three weeks on a catamaran. Mm-hmm. You you were on an island for how long were you on Orpheus Island? Oh, it was only for like four days, but um, okay. I signed up to be a volunteer, so I'll be going back very soon. Excellent. Yeah. So. I'm sure you had some things happen that were either completely amazing and like the best thing ever. And there were some things that just went totally wrong and weird. And you were like, well, that's a really excellent story at the end of the day. Yeah. What is your, what is your favorite field story to tell? And it could be good or bad. Um, favorite slash least favorite, I guess, cause it's very sad <laughs> <laughs> was when we were in the BVIs, we were, um, it was probably one of my first dives that I ever did. And we were at the bottom and I um, saw a nurse shark tail sticking out of this little cave. Little me, I love mm-hmm. I love sharks. And um, I was like, oh my goodness, wave to my buddy, there's a shark, there's a shark. And we go down there and we look into the cave and it was a dead shark <laughs> because it was mm-hmm. trapped in, it got entangled in some sort of ghost fishing net or some sort of um, shark deterrent device that they had out in the BVIs at that moment. But it was, Mm. it looked like it had nudged itself in this cave to 
hide or something, but it had been, the net had been uh, stuck on the wall of the cave because obviously hard substrate attaches to little pieces of plastic like netting and it couldn't get out of it. And most sharks need to move forward to be able to breathe. So it was really, mm-hmm. it was really sad to see, but that kind of shakes you awake as well, that you need to change what you're doing. And a formative experience sounds yeah. like. <clears throat> I guess I could do a happy story. Hmm. I like, all right, let's counteract it. <laughs> counteract that one. So um, a few weeks ago, um, one of my roommates, he has a boat and we went out to Orpheus just like as a fishing trip. We love going fishing. We love knowing what we're catching and where it comes from. So we went out fishing and we were it's probably just just around 8 a.m. And we were like looking, looking on the water and we just see this massive black thing pop out of the water and go back under. And I was like, what is that? So we threw in some lines and um, I caught something. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I was reeling it in. It was fighting me. I was freaking out because I had never had something this big on my line. I could just feel it fighting. I was like, oh my goodness, this is exciting. And then <laughs> as I get, it was a Spanish mackerel. Mm. As I get the mackerel towards the boat, a bronze whaler, which is a type of shark, jumps out of the water right beside our boat and eats my fish. <laughs> and, uh, it was it was the most amazing thing you could see because you don't realize how massive they are until they're out of the water as well. Yes. Oh, I, I, it's just, it was crazy to watch. I bet. And you're not even <laughs> mad that I ate your fish because you're like, well, that, no. that happened. That's amazing. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. It worked hard for it. So <laughs> now you're, the shark didn't get caught on your hook at all. And Nope. No. Yeah. It ate half of the mackerel, so. Okay. Well, that was fortunate. Yeah. It left, left you away. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Fantastic. So do you have any advice for any anybody that is aspiring to be a marine biologist? And I, I feel like you've done quite a bit in your undergrad mm-hmm. already. So, and I, and you have had some wonderful experiences. So what advice would you give to somebody that is considering having doing their undergrad in marine biology or becoming a marine biologist yeah I definitely think doing volunteer work and internships gives you hands-on experience to know what you'll be jumping into after you get out of school so I didn't really know what I was doing when I first came to uni I wanted to be a marine biologist I knew that but I didn't really know what it, it entailed so doing volunteer work being an intern, understanding what you go through each day um, is definitely an eye-opener. And Mm -hmm. doing the grunt work, honestly, while you're an undergrad, be that volunteer that goes and cleans beakers, um, do anything that anyone in the lab will need you to do, really shows like how hard you work. So Mm -hmm. I think being, yeah, being a volunteer is the number one thing I would say, because it puts experience on your resumes, your CVs, but it also, you can get recommendations from those people in the lab. You can get potential job offers just because you have a recommendation from a certain person. So just putting Mm -hmm. yourself out there, definitely networking is the number one advice I could give anyone that wants to go in the field. Excellent advice. 
Well, we kind of touched on this already. One of my favorite questions to ask is what's your favorite sea creature? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite sea creature? <laughs> I know you love elasmobranchs. Can you pick yes. one or one species? Um, I have two, big and small. Okay. So my favorite um, is a tiger shark. I just love mm. them. I love their camouflage capabilities with their stripes looking down from the water and then looking up their white. It's amazing to see that. But my favorite small elasmobranch would have to be a, a bamboo shark because I had one that worked whenever I was working at the zoo. He had his own personality. He just, he always came up every time I was up there. Even if he didn't want to eat, he always just sat in front of me and just like stared at me. And it was, it was just so cute. I loved it. <laughs> How fun. (laughs) Fish really do have their own personalities. It's amazing. Oh, definitely. Very cool. So you've swam with tiger sharks. Um, No, I've actually never swam with them. Okay. (laughs) The way you made that picture. (laughs) I was swimming with them. I've looked it up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely looked it up a lot. I'm just, I'm obsessed, so. Incredible. Well, I can't wait to see the day that you do swim with them. I'm sure that'll be oh, everyone will see it. That is for sure. <laughs> It'll be on all social media. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. If listeners want to, where can they find you and learn more about you or the women for in ocean science? Any social media. I always have my name as Bailey Joe Curtis. Excellent. Short little name. You got to add it in. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then if anyone in the Townsville area wants to be in women in ocean science in Townsville, you just look that up on Instagram and we're tagged in a few of the Women in Ocean Science International page as well. Perfect. And I'll put a link in the show notes to all of that as well. Yeah, easy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on, Bailey. This was really fun. No, thank you so much. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter, When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.